Hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. I'm happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast believes that trans rights are human rights, that abortion is health care, and that black lives matter, and we stand in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show, as well as links to institutions fighting for reproductive justice, can all be found in the show notes. We're down to the last Karnacki story of the year, and because I just can't get an easy closer, it's the longest one so far. So, this will be two episodes again. I'm really excited about 2023. It's going to be the biggest and most ambitious year yet for the show. I've got all sorts of things planned out, which I'll be talking about in a couple of weeks here, and I hope you also get excited about everything. I spent all of November working on adding short stories to the next collection of short fiction I want to put out, and I'm really excited with how it's shaping up. It's looking to be a little bit longer than Colin Malatrat if I can get everything written the way I want, though it won't be interconnected. They'll all be standalones. Speaking of Colin Malatrat, got another five-star review on Amazon, so if you haven't gotten it yet, what are you waiting for? It's certified gold, baby. Go pick it up. Link is in the show notes. Anyway, enough prattle. Here's the story. The Chronicles of Karnacki, Volume 6, The Thing Invisible, by William Hope Hodgson. Karnacki had just returned to Shane Walk, Chelsea. I was aware of this interesting fact by reason of the curt and quaintly worded postcard which I was rereading, and by which I was requested to present myself at his house not later than seven o'clock on that evening. Mr. Karnacki had, as I and the others of his strictly limited circle of friends knew, been away in Kent for the past three weeks, but beyond that we had no knowledge. Karnacki was genially secretive and curt, and spoke only when he was ready to speak. When this stage arrived, I and his three other friends, Jessup, Arkwright, and Taylor, would receive a card or a wire asking us to call. Not one of us ever willingly missed, for after a thoroughly sensible little dinner, Karnacki would snuggle down into his big armchair, light his pipe, and wait whilst we arranged ourselves comfortably in our accustomed seats and nooks. Then he would begin to talk. Upon this particular night, I was the first to arrive and found Karnacki sitting, quietly smoking over a paper. He stood up, shook me firmly by the hand, pointed to a chair, and sat down again, never having uttered a word. For my part, I said nothing either. I knew the man too well to bother him with questions or the weather, and so took a seat and a cigarette. Presently, the three others turned up, and after that, we spent a comfortable and busy hour at dinner. Dinner over, Karnacki snugged himself down into his great chair, as I have said was his habit, filled his pipe and puffed for a while, his gaze directed thoughtfully at the fire. The rest of us, if I may so express it, made ourselves cozy, each after his own particular manner. A minute or so later, Karnacki began to speak, ignoring my preliminary remarks, and going straight to the subject of the story we knew he had to tell. I have just come back from Sir Alfred Jarnock's place at Burton Tree in South Kent, he began without removing his gaze from the fire. Most extraordinary things have been happening down there lately, and Mr. George Jarnock, the eldest son, wired to ask me to run over and see whether I could help to clear matters up a bit. I went. When I got there, I found that they have an old chapel attached to the castle, which has had quite a distinguished reputation for being what is popularly termed haunted. They have been rather proud of this, as I managed to discover, until quite lately when something very disagreeable occurred, which served to remind them that family ghosts are not always content, as I might say, to remain purely ornamental. 
It sounds almost laughable, I know, to hear of a long-respected supernatural phenomenon growing unexpectedly dangerous, and in this case the tale of the haunting was considered as little more than an old myth, except after nightfall when possibly it became more plausible-seeming. But, however this may be, there is no doubt at all but that what I term the haunting essence which lived in this place had become suddenly dangerous, deadly dangerous too, the old butler being nearly stabbed to death one night in the chapel with a peculiar old dagger. It is, in fact, this dagger which is popularly supposed to haunt the chapel. At least, there has always been a story handed down in the family that this dagger would attack any enemy who should dare to venture into the chapel after nightfall. But, of course, this has been taken with just about the same amount of seriousness that people take most ghost tales, and that is not usually of a worryingly real nature. I mean that most people never quite know how much or how little they believe of matters abhuman or abnormal, and generally they never have an opportunity to learn. And indeed, as you are all aware, I am as big a skeptic concerning the truth of ghost tales as any man you are likely to meet. Only I am what I might term an unprejudiced skeptic. I am not given to either believing or disbelieving things on principle, as I have found many idiots prone to be, and what is more, some of them not ashamed to boast of the insane fact. I view all reported hauntings as unproven until I have examined into them, and I am bound to admit that 99 cases in a 100 turn out to be sheer bosh and fancy. But the 100th? Well, if it were not for the 100th, I should have few stories to tell you, eh? Of course, after the attack on the butler, it became evident that there was at least something in the old story concerning the dagger, and I found everyone in a half-belief that the queer old weapon did really strike the butler, either by the aid of some inherent force, which I found them peculiarly unable to explain, or else in the hand of some invisible thing or monster of the outer world. From considerable experience, I knew that it was much more likely that the butler had been knifed by some vicious and quite material human. Naturally, the first thing to do was to test this probability of human agency, and I set to work to make a pretty drastic examination of the people who knew most about the tragedy. The result of this examination both pleased and surprised me, for it left me with very good reasons for belief that I had come upon one of those extraordinary, rare, true manifestations of the extrusion of a force from outside. In more popular phraseology, a genuine case of haunting. These are the facts. On the previous Sunday evening but one, Sir Alfred Jarnock's household had attended family service as usual in the chapel. You see, the rector goes over to officiate twice each Sunday after concluding his duties at the public church about three miles away. At the end of the service in the chapel, Sir Alfred Jarnock, his son, Mr. George Jarnock, and the rector had stood for a couple of minutes talking whilst old Bellet, the butler, went round putting out the candles. Suddenly, the rector remembered that he had left his small prayer book on the communion table in the morning. He turned and asked the butler to get it for him before he blew out the chancel candles. Now, I have particularly called your attention to this because it is important in that it provides witnesses in a most fortunate manner at an extraordinary moment. You see, the rector's turning to speak to Bellet had naturally caused both Sir Alfred Jarnock and his son to glance in the direction of the butler, and it was at this identical instant, and whilst all three were looking at him, that the old butler was stabbed, there, full in the candlelight, before their eyes. I took the opportunity to call early upon the rector, after I had questioned Mr. George Jarnock, who replied to my queries in place of Sir Alfred Jarnock, for the older man was in a nervous and shaken condition as a result of the happening, and his son wished him to avoid dwelling upon the scene as much as possible. 
The rector's version was clear and vivid, and he had evidently received the astonishment of his life. He pictured to me the whole affair, Bellet up at the chancel gate going for the prayer book and absolutely alone, and then the blow, out of the void, he described it, and the force prodigious, the old man being driven headlong into the body of the chapel. Like the kick of a great horse, the rector said, his benevolent old eyes bright and intense with the effort he had actually witnessed in defiance of all that he had hitherto believed. When I left him, he went back to the writing which he had put aside when I appeared. I feel sure that he was developing the first unorthodox sermon that he had ever evolved. He was a dear old chap, and I should certainly like to have heard it. The last man I visited was the butler. He was, of course, in a frightfully weak and shaken condition, but he could tell me nothing that did not point to there being a power abroad in the chapel. He told the same tale in every minute particular that I had learned from the others. He had been just going up to put out the altar candles and fetch the rector's book when something struck him an enormous blow high up on the left breast, and he was driven headlong into the aisle. Examination had shown that he had been stabbed by the dagger, of which I will tell you more in a moment, that hung always above the altar. The weapon had entered, fortunately some inches above the heart, just under the collarbone which had been broken by the stupendous force of the blow, the dagger itself being driven clean through the body and out through the scapula behind. The poor old fellow could not talk much, and I soon left him, but what he had told me was sufficient to make it unmistakable that no living person had been within yards of him when he was attacked, and as I knew, this fact was verified by three capable and responsible witnesses independent of Bellet himself. The thing now was to search the chapel, which is small and extremely old. It is very massively built and entered through only one door, which leads out of the castle itself, and the key of which is kept by Sir Alfred Jarnock, the butler having no duplicate. The shape of the chapel is oblong, and the altar is railed off after the usual fashion. There are two tombs in the body of the place, but none in the chancel, which is bare, except for the tall candlesticks and the chancel rail, beyond which is the undraped altar of solid marble, upon which stand four small candlesticks, two at each end. Above the altar hangs the Wayful Dagger, as I had learned it was named. I fancy the term had been taken from an old vellum, which describes the dagger and its supposed abnormal properties. I took the dagger down and examined it minutely and with method. The blade is ten inches long, two inches broad at the base, and tapering to a rounded but sharp point, rather peculiar. It is double-edged. The metal sheath is curious for having a cross piece, which, taken with the fact that the sheath itself is continued three parts up the hilt of the dagger, in a most inconvenient fashion, gives it the appearance of a cross. That this is not unintentional is shown by an engraving of the Christ crucified upon one side, whilst upon the other, in Latin, is the inscription, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. A quaint and rather terrible conjunction of ideas. Upon the blade of the dagger is graven in old English capitals, I watch, I strike. On the butt of the hilt there is carved deeply a pentacle. This is a pretty accurate description of the peculiar old weapon that has had the curious and uncomfortable reputation of being able, either of its own accord or in the hand of something invisible, to strike murderously any enemy of the Jarnock family who may chance to enter the chapel after nightfall. I may tell you here and now that before I left... I had very good reason to put certain doubts behind me, for I tested the deadliness of the thing myself. As you know, however, at this point of my investigation, I was still at that stage where I considered the existence of a supernatural force unproven. 
In the meanwhile, I treated the chapel drastically, sounding and scrutinizing the walls and floor, dealing with them almost foot by foot, and particularly examining the two tombs. At the end of this search, I had in a ladder and made a close survey of the groined roof. I passed three days in this fashion, and by the evening of the third day, I had proven to my entire satisfaction that there is no place in the whole of that chapel where any living being could have hidden, and also that the only way of ingress and egress to and from the chapel is through the doorway which leads into the castle, the door of which was always kept locked, and the key kept by Sir Alfred Jarnock himself, as I have told you. I mean, of course, that this doorway is the only entrance practicable to material people. Yes, as you will see, even had I discovered some other opening, secret or otherwise, it would not have helped at all to explain the mystery of the incredible attack in a normal fashion, for the butler, as you know, was struck in full sight of the rector, Sir Jarnock, and his son, and old Bellet himself knew that no living person had touched him. Out of the void, the rector had described the inhumanly brutal attack. Out of the void. Strange feeling it gives one, eh? And this is the thing that I had been called in to bottom. After considerable thought, I decided on a plan of action. I proposed to Sir Alfred Jarnock that I should spend a night in the chapel and keep a constant watch upon the dagger. But to this, the old knight, a little wizened nervous man, would not listen for a moment. He, at least, I felt assured, had no doubt of the reality of some dangerous supernatural force aroam at night in the chapel. He informed me that it had been his habit every evening to lock the chapel door so that one might foolishly or heedlessly run the risk of any peril that it might hold at night, and that he could not allow me to attempt such a thing after what had happened to the butler. I could see that Sir Alfred Jarnock was very much in earnest, and would evidently have held himself to blame had he allowed me to make the experiment and any harm come to me, so I said nothing in argument, and presently, pleading the fatigue of his years and health, he said good night and left me, having given me the impression of being a polite but rather superstitious old gentleman. That night, however, whilst I was undressing, I saw how I might achieve the thing I wished and be able to enter the chapel after dark without making Sir Alfred Jarnock nervous. On the morrow, when I borrowed the key, I would take an impression and have a duplicate made. Then with my private key, I could do just what I liked. In the morning, I carried out my idea. I borrowed the key as I wanted to take a photograph of the chancel by daylight. When I had done this, I locked up the chapel and handed the key to Sir Alfred Jarnock, having first taken an impression in soap. I had brought out the exposed plate in its slide with me, but the camera I had left exactly as it was, as I wanted to take a second photograph of the chancel that night from the same position. I took the dark slide into Burton Tree, also the cake of soap with the impress. The soap I left with the local ironmonger, who was something of a locksmith, and promised to let me have my duplicate finished if I could call in two hours. This I did, having in the meanwhile found out a photographer where I developed the plate and left it to dry, telling him I would call next day. At the end of the two hours, I went for my key and found it ready, much to my satisfaction. Then I returned to the castle. After dinner that evening, I played billiards with young Jarnock for a couple of hours. Then I had a cup of coffee and went off to my room, telling him I was feeling awfully tired. He nodded and told me he felt the same way. I was glad, for I wanted the house to settle as soon as possible. I locked the door of my room, then from under the bed where I had hidden them earlier in the evening, I drew out several fine pieces of plate armor which I had removed from the armory. There was also a shirt of chain mail with a sort of quilted hood of mail to go over the head. I buckled on the plate armor and found it extraordinarily uncomfortable, 
and overall I drew on the chainmail. I know nothing about armor, but from what I have learned since, I must have put on parts of two suits. Anyway, I felt beastly, clamped and clumsy and unable to move my arms and legs naturally, but I knew that the thing I was thinking of doing called for some sort of protection for my body. Over the armor, I pulled on my dressing gown and shoved my revolver into one of the side pockets and my repeating flashlight into the other. My dark lantern I carried in my hand. As soon as I was ready, I went out into the passage and listened. I had been some considerable time making my preparations, and I found that now the big hall and staircase were in darkness and all the house seemed quiet. I stepped back and closed and locked my door. Then, very slowly and silently, I went downstairs to the hall and turned into the passage that led to the chapel. I reached the door and tried my key. It fitted perfectly, and a moment later I was in the chapel with the door locked behind me and all about me the utter drear silence of the place with just the faint showings of the outlines of the stained, leaded windows making the darkness and lonesomeness almost the more apparent. Now, it would be silly to say I did not feel queer— I felt very queer indeed. You just try, any of you, to imagine yourself standing there in the dark silence and remembering not only the legend that was attached to the place, but what had really happened to the old butler only a little while gone. I can tell you, as I stood there, I could believe that something invisible was coming toward me in the air of the chapel. Yet I had got to go through with the business, and I just took hold of my little bit of courage and set to work. First of all, I switched on my light— Then I began a careful tour of the place, examining every corner and nook. I found nothing unusual. At the chancel gate, I held up my lamp and flashed the light at the dagger. It hung there right enough above the altar, but I remembered thinking of the word demure as I looked at it. However, I pushed the thought away, for what I was doing needed no addition of uncomfortable thoughts. I completed the tour of the place with a constantly growing awareness of its utter chill and unkind desolation— An atmosphere of cold dismalness seemed to be everywhere, and the quiet was abominable. At the conclusion of my search, I walked across to where I had left my camera, focused upon the chancel. From the satchel that I had put beneath the tripod, I took out a dark slide and inserted it in the camera, drawing the shutter. After that, I uncapped the lens, pulled out my flashlight apparatus, and pressed the trigger. There was an intense, brilliant flash that made the whole of the interior of the chapel jump into sight and disappear as quickly. Then, in the light from my lantern, I inserted the shutter into the slide and reversed the slide so as to have a fresh plate ready to expose at any time. After I had done this, I shut off my lantern and sat down in one of the pews near to my camera. I cannot say what I expected to happen, but I had an extraordinary feeling, almost a conviction, that something peculiar or horrible would soon occur. It was, you know, as if I knew. An hour passed of absolute silence, the time I knew by the far-off faint chime of a clock that had been erected over the stables. I was beastly cold, for the whole place is without any kind of heating pipes or furnace, as I had noticed during my search, so that the temperature was sufficiently uncomfortable to suit my frame of mind. I felt like a kind of human periwinkle encased in boilerplate and frozen with cold and funk. And you know, somehow, the dark about me seemed to press coldly against my face. I cannot say whether any of you have ever had the feeling, but if you have, you will know just how disgustingly unnerving it is. And then, all at once, I had a horrible sense that something was moving in the place. It was not that I could hear anything, but I had a kind of intuitive knowledge that something had stirred in the darkness. Can you imagine how I felt? 
Suddenly, my courage went. I put up my mailed arm over my face. I wanted to protect it. I had got a sudden, sickening feeling that something was hovering over me in the dark. Talk about fright. I could have shouted if I had not been afraid of the noise. And then abruptly, I heard something. Away up the aisle, there sounded a dull clang of metal, as it might be the tread of a mailed heel upon the stone of the aisle. I sat immovable. I was fighting with all my strength to get back my courage. I could not take my arms down from over my face, but I knew that I was getting hold of the gritty part of me again. And suddenly I made a mighty effort and lowered my arms. I held my face up in the darkness. And, I tell you, I respect myself for the act, because I thought truly at that moment that I was going to die. But I think, just then, by the slow revulsion of feeling which had assisted my effort, I was less sick in that instant at the thought of having to die than at the knowledge of the utter weak cowardice that had so unexpectedly shaken me all to bits for a time. Do I make myself clear? You understand, I feel sure, that the sense of respect which I spoke of is not really unhealthy egotism, because, you see, I'm not blind to the state of mind which helped me. I mean that if I had uncovered my face by a sheer effort of will, unhelped by any revulsion of feeling, I should have done a thing much more worthy of mention. But, even as it was, there were elements in the act worthy of respect. You follow me, don't you? And, you know, nothing touched me after all, so that in a little while I had got back a bit to my normal and felt steady enough to go through with the business without any more funking. I dare say a couple of minutes passed, and then away up near the chancel there came again that clang, as though an armored foot stepped cautiously. By Jove, but it made me stiffen. And suddenly the thought came that the sound I heard might be the rattle of the dagger above the altar. It was not a particularly sensible notion, for the sound was far too heavy and resonant for such a cause. Yet, as can be easily understood, my reason was bound to submit somewhat to my fancy at such a time. I remembered now that the idea of that insensate thing became animate, and attacking me did not occur to me with any sense of possibility or reality. I thought, rather, in a vague way of some invisible monster of outer space fumbling at the dagger. I remembered the old rector's description of the attack on the butler, of the void, and he had described the stupendous force of the blow as being like the kick of a great horse. You can see how uncomfortably my thoughts were running. I felt round swiftly and cautiously for my lantern. I found it close to me on the pew seat, and with a sudden jerky movement I switched on the light. I flashed it up the aisle, to and fro across the chancel, but I could see nothing to frighten me. I turned quickly and sent the jet of light darting across and across the rear end of the chapel, then on each side of me, before and behind, up at the roof and down at the marble floor, but nowhere was there any visible thing to put me in fear. Not a thing that need have set my flesh thrilling, just the quiet chapel, cold and eternally silent. You know the feeling. I had been standing whilst I set the light about the chapel, but now I pulled out my revolver, and then with a tremendous effort of will, switched off the light and sat down again in the darkness to continue my constant watch. It seemed to me that quite half an hour, or even more, must have passed after this, during which no sound had broken the intense stillness. I had grown less nervously tense, for the flashing of the light round the place had made me feel less out of all bounds of the normal. It had given me something of that unreasoned sense of safety that a nervous child obtains at night by covering its head up with the bedclothes. This just about illustrates the completely human illogicalness of the workings of my feelings, 
For as you know, whatever creature, thing, or being it was that had made that extraordinary and horrible attack on the old butler, it had certainly not been visible. And so you must picture me sitting there in the dark, clumsy with armor and with my revolver in one hand and nursing my lantern ready with the other. And then it was, after this little time of partial relief from intense nervousness, that there came a fresh strain on me, for somewhere... In the utter quiet of the chapel, I thought I heard something. I listened, tense and rigid, my heart booming just a little in my ears for a moment. Then I thought I heard it again. I felt sure that something had moved at the top of the aisle. I strained in the darkness to hark, and my eyes showed me blackness within blackness, wherever I glanced, so that I took no heed of what they told me. For even if I looked at the dim loom of the stained window at the top of the chancel, my sight gave me the shapes of vague shadows passing noiseless and ghostly across constantly. There was a time of almost peculiar silence horrible to me, as I felt just then. And suddenly I seemed to hear a sound again nearer to me, and repeated, infinitely stealthy. It was as if a vast, soft tread were coming slowly down the aisle. Can you imagine how I felt? I do not think you can. I did not move any more than the stone effigies on the two tombs, but sat there, stiffened. I fancied now that I heard the tread all about the chapel. And then, you know, I was just as sure in a moment that I could not hear it, that I had never heard it. Some particularly long minutes passed about this time, but I think my nerves must have quieted a bit for I remember being sufficiently aware of my feelings to realize that the muscles of my shoulders ached with the way that they must have been contracted as I sat there, hunching myself rigid. Mind you, I was still in a disgusting funk, but what I might call the imminent sense of danger seemed to have eased from around me. At any rate, I felt, in some curious fashion, that there was a respite, a temporary cessation of malignity from about me. It is impossible to word my feelings more clearly to you, for... I cannot see them more clearly than this myself. Yet you must not picture me as sitting there, free from strain, for the nerve tension was so great that my heart action was a little out of normal control. The blood beat, making a dull booming at times in my ears, with the result that I had the sensation that I could not hear acutely. This is a simply beastly feeling, especially under such circumstances. I was sitting like this, listening, as I might say, with body and soul, when suddenly I got that hideous conviction again that something was moving in the air of the place. The feeling seemed to stiffen me as I sat, and my head appeared to tighten as if all the scalp had grown tense. This was so real that I suffered an actual pain, most peculiar and at the same time intense. The whole head pained. I had a fierce desire to cover my face again with my mailed arms, but I fought it off. If I had given way then to that... I should simply have bunked straight out of the place. I sat and sweated coldly, that's the bald truth, with the creep busy at my spine. And that is the end of the first half of the story. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to join Alhambra's army of champions over on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Podcast. You get bonus readings and the weekly episodes early, and you get to help keep the lights on in the 1,800-square-foot penthouse apartment I've outfitted as my recording studio in the heart of Manhattan. Seriously, this place is nice. 
Thank you to Ryan Patrick, Ineptus Astartes, and Matthias Hansen for your support. It is very much appreciated. Thank you all so much for listening. Please go and get vaccinated for whatever you're available for and maybe a few things you should get boosted on. Vaccines are science, and science is good regardless of what any particular religion thinks about it. If you see a racist out and about, or someone who openly condones Nazism or doesn't condemn people who want to tear up the Constitution, punch them in the face. They're assholes. And always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.